You're listening to the Bike Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to Resonance 104.4 FM. This is The Bike Show with me, Jack Thurston. Were you out on the World Naked Bike Ride at the weekend? Well, if you were, I hope the chafing was minimal. On the show today, a visit to Coventry, home of the world's first naked bike rider, Lady Godiva. Well, fair enough, she rode a horse, not a bicycle. But that was mostly because it was the 11th century and the bicycle hadn't yet been invented. In fact, Lady Godiva would have to wait another 800 years until one of her fellow Coventrians, John Kemp Starley, came up with the Rover Safety, the very first diamond frame bicycle. That's the bicycle with two equal-sized wheels and a frame in a diamond shape composed of two triangles, triangle tubes. The, The bicycle that we ride today for the most part. And so the city of Coventry can make a very good claim to have given us the modern bicycle. Someone only too happy to make that claim is Steve Bagley, Head of Collections at the Coventry Transport Museum. Steve and I went for a ride around the city and a trip back in time. So we've got an absolutely gorgeous day here. And it's better than... uh, sitting in the office. We're going to go for a little spin around Coventry, We're starting off here at the uh, Transport Museum. Now, I was slightly expecting you to be riding one of the bikes from the collection, but you're riding your own bike today. Yeah, I'm riding my own bike. I mean, it's a bike with history. All the company's got history. I couldn't just buy a modern bicycle without having a little bit of heritage behind it, so I ride a Bianchi. Yeah. So we're going to take a spin around this city, which is one of three cities, I think, in the UK that are intimately associated with the history of the bicycle, the others being Birmingham and Nottingham, not too far away. So where are we going to go now? I think we'll go, actually, funnily enough, we'll go by the cathedral. I mean, obviously, Coventry is famous for its modern cathedral, its old cathedral through the Blitz and things. So we'll go there and have a look at what's left of what was one of the biggest and most famous cycle works, the Triumph Cycle Factory. Great. Well, I'll follow you, Steve. OK. So is Coventry... uh a cycling city today? Very much no. <laughs> uh, it's, um, I think like, like a lot of major cities, we have cycle paths that go nowhere. I'm not sure we have a will at the political level to actually do something with cycling. So, uh, no, it's not. It's a real shame. You know, the heritage of the city... The heritage of the city is completely entangled with the cycling, but today we don't really um, do anything about it at all. Right, so we're going to be dicing with death on ring roads and strange pedestrian plazas, are we? Uh, I, I think we'll stay off the Coventry ring road because if anybody knows it, it's bad enough in a car. So we'll stay off it on bicycles. <laughs> but we are going to be dicing with death, yes. Okay. So this is the uh, famous 
modernist cathedral. Yeah, that's right. And funnily enough, it's built on the site of an old cycle works. The Triumph Cycle Works, probably better known for motorcars and motorcycles, but the Triumph Company started off as a cycle manufacturer in the late 1800s, in the mid-1890s. A German guy called Siegfried Bettmann started the company up and uh, he used to stand on this site and it's, this is typical of the city, not just the Blitz, but the bulldozer also has changed the city fundamentally so there's nothing left of the of the late Victorian factory on this site. We have, like you said, a modernist cathedral on one side and a building on the other side, which is pretty difficult to describe, really, <laughs> which is the university, okay. Coventry University. Right. And all this site here would have been a cycle factory, right wow. from the top of there, right down to the swimming baths down there. So that would obviously show up on old maps and show plans and old maps photographs. And photographs and things. The round chapel of industry here used to stand on the, de- the, the, the site of the dispatch area for the cycle works. And it really sort of shows in microcosm what's happened to the city. You know, it used to be the city centre would have just been full of these cycle factories in the 1870s, 1880s and 1890s. And it's all gone. There's very little left. We will go and have a look at some, you know, what's left of some cycle factories. But, you know, one of the major cycle factories in the city, one of the most prominent citizens, Siegfried Bettman, the founder, became... And now there's really nothing left of it at all to sort of to, sh- to show that it was here. And it's the same with the motor car industry as well. Most of that's gone as well. So at its peak, how many people would have worked at the factory on the site where we're standing we're, now? We're probably looking at a thousand workers, up to about a thousand workers. It was a big site. It grew as the as the, as the company developed, but it was a one of the largest purpose-built cycle factories in, in in Britain at the time. So it was a major employer. And so was Coventry one of those cities where there's a kind of hub of activity, lots of different companies supplying and specialising and trading with each other to produce a, a finished product? Yeah, very, very much so. There's, there's two things about Coventry. There's, there's that. There's also there's the, there were lots of actual cycle manufacturers in the city. More, Birmingham was actually more, was more famous for its component manufacturers. But Coventry actually had the, the manufacturers themselves, people like Rudge, Triumph, Premier, Singer, um, I could, Raglan, I could go on. There are, there, there are hundred. I mean, we have on um, record over 200 cycle manufacturers that were in the city at some point. Some large, some probably never choose, produced the bike, but registered as a company. So Coventry had that as well. And um, yeah, so, so and it would have been an absolute hub because within the the city centre, these factories grew up first of all in the 1870s. So within a two, three mile radius of where the transport museum is today you would have had literally hundreds of cycle factories and thousands of people going to work in those cycle factories. So when you talk about cycle factory in the 1870s, we're not really talking about a factory, are we? Are we talking about small workshops? Had they got onto mass production at that point or or were they very much making things, you know, in, in quite small numbers with quite a lot of work being done by each individual worker rather than a production line? Started off exactly as you say, individual workers brazing frames together assembling things but then of course that would be in the 1870s by the 1880s and then by the 1890s when the cycle boom happened in in britain then it became mass production not not ford production line mass but you know lots people had only braze a frame and then it'd be passed on to somebody else to do something else so it was an early form of mass production and the cycle factories ranged from 
very small workshops like you're talking about. The first cycle factory in the city was a very small. But by the 1890s, we're talking about factories with basic mass production, like I say, with the Triumph Works, employing up to 1,000 people. So they went from, in a very short time, from these very small workshops to what you'd recognise almost as a modern factory. So this is a new and quite futuristic industry in the 1870s. What was here before and why did Coventry start making bicycles? Okay, Coventry, like many other cities, was a city of boom and bust. In the medieval period, there was dyeing and weaving and things, and that continued for many years. And in the later period, the period we're talking about, watchmaking had become a prominent uh, industry, as had weaving. They both got into financial for economic problems because of imports and all sorts of tariffs and things like that. So um, a small sewing machine company came to the city in the late 1860s and out of that small sewing machine company there was a guy there called James Starley who was working in there. Some French velocipedes were brought over to the city in 1868 and they saw an opportunity because there was also a sort of slight dip in the sewing machine market as well. They saw an opportunity to manufacture these bicycles. And from then on, very, very early, it was James Starley and a couple of other people, uh, William Hillman, who people may have heard of, who went on to make Hillman cars, who were the pioneers. They had small factories, began to build these French philosophies, began to develop them into what we know today as penny farthings. And that was the very small, you know, birth of the industry and from that by the mid 1870s you still didn't have you know more than five ten manufacturers in the city but by the 1890s we're getting to this 200 mark so from a very small in 20 years it just exploded and then by the by the 1890s it was the major industry in the city so for anyone listening who's not an aficionado of cycle history let's let's talk about a little bit the design aspect so these french philosophies these are bicycles with two equal sized wheels that would be propelled by pushing along with the feet or by some sort of pedal yeah they're basically iron framed wooden wheeled uh, metal tired bicycles wheels of almost the same size front wheel slightly bigger with the pedals and cranks attached to the front wheel so they're not hobby horses you don't push them along the floor with your feet you actually pedal onto the front wheel If you can imagine, I think most people can imagine a penny farthing, they're like small penny farthings made out of wood. (laughs) Okay, So then what happens is that bicycle then becomes the penny farthing. Because people want to go faster. Because people want to go faster. So the wheels got bigger because the the technology for gearing and the manufacture of gearing and chains wasn't up to the the spec to, to actually put them onto bikes. So the front wheel got bigger. They began to introduce metal spokes, solid rubber tyres, tubular frames. So the penny farthing, although we think it today is something that was very, uh, you don't want to ride one, they're very dangerous, and they are. But compared to a velocipede, a wooden iron frame, the penny farthing was quite in advance. And that, that, in the very early period, that was happening in Coventry, elsewhere as well. The aerial bicycle, the first sort of penny farthing made in this city, was a great advance over the velocipede, just because of the materials it was made out of. I mean, this, this area of the city is quite picturesque almost. You know, we have a medieval street with some half-timbered buildings and there's a 14th century guild hall up there and all sorts of things. So it's a pleasant area of the city. Oh, lots of cobbles. It's a bit tricky on my Brompton with my tiny little tyres. Won't be doing the Paris-Roubaix on this in a hurry. Oh, blimey. Paris-Roubaix anyway. So this is a... Well, we've got a Victorian yeah, building here. 
the council oh. house, basically. It's okay. an Edwardian building, yeah. Survived the bombing? Uh, yes. One and the bulldozers? And the bulldozers, yes. The city itself, you can just get a glimpse if you look up there, is a, I suppose you'd call it modernist as well, a 1950s, you know, modernist car, uh, carless, which is interesting precinct, you know, as we were a city of cars, it's interesting that when they decided to redesign the precinct, the city centre after the war, they made it car free, which is very nice. Although this is a very modern area with a quite a modern 1950s police station and the old telephone exchange opposite us, this site here is most important in terms of Coventry cycling history. It was in just across the road in front of us, it was in a factory there that these French philosophies were first made in 1868. They were bought from the Paris Exposition by a, uh, the nephew of the owner of the sewing machine factory and they built the first uh, Velocipedes and in fact it's gone now completely. The factory in fact would have run over where we're standing now uh, and that was called the Coventry Machinist Company and that was sort of the founding um, company for the Coventry cycling industry and then we're just on the corner of St John Street and James Starley and William Hillman are two of the most important pioneers. They actually built, their, their first factory was here and on this site they built the first what you'd recognise as a penny farthing. So this is again is typical of the city, 1950s, 60s buildings on a site that was you know, highly significant to the development of the city in the late 1800s. So the redevelopment of the city after the war, yeah. was that before the era of auto-mobility had no. kind of taken grip on town planners? Because it's quite surprising that they should make it a walking... Yeah. Uh, town centre. Were there lots of car parks all the way around? Yeah, lots, lots of... Uh, they put some rooftop car parks in. Um, but what's quite interesting, although they made the city centre completely car-free, the city centre is surrounded by a ring road. It's like an elevated motorway. It's a dual carriageway, four-lane dual carriageway. And that was designed because the, old, the town couldn't take the amount of traffic. Because, because Coventry became one of the centres in Britain for car production in the 1950s, there was more car ownership per head of population in the city than in most towns. Because the workers would get the workers cheaper access exactly. to their products. Exactly, exactly. So the city centre is car-free, but surrounding it is this horrible elevated ring road that was built specifically because the town couldn't take the amount of cars that the population had. So we've just stopped here. Well, we've just come across. This is one of those sort of wannabe shared spaces. But unfortunately, it's just got too much motor traffic trying to get through, so it ends up being might is right. Yeah, that's right. And it's just, it's, it's just not working. I mean, it's a shame, because I, I really like the concept. But, and the other, the other issue is, for many, many years, there were traffic lights there. And if you're local, you expect there to be traffic lights there. And it's, we're not used to that sort of open space the way it is, but you're quite right. You know, that bus wasn't going to stop for us, was it? <laughs> okay, that, that building opposite us is a quite an ornate red brick Victorian building. And that was built in 1896 as the uh, Excel Works for the Calcott brothers. They were a, a smallish cycle manufacturer who made very high-class, very good bicycles. The, the actual factory has now been replaced by student accommodation. 
but that is one of the very few interesting examples of of, of, the, of you know a, a cycle factory that's left in the city and gives some idea that you know some of those offices and that for the factories might have been quite ornate and quite interesting and that that's the other thing about the city is that some of the cycle makers in fact many of the cycle makers in the late 1890s early 1900s turned their hand to making cars motor cars I suppose it's quite an easy transition from one to the other but what a lot of people forget I think is that the city was able to do that because it had made its wealth making cycles. The people who made cycles, the Calcott brothers, Hillman, Singer, Stiley, those people we've been talking about earlier, they all made a pile, I mean millions and millions of pounds out of manufacturing cycles. They all built big houses on the outskirts of the city. They become the city's you know, millionaires, nouveau riche. And that was where the money was made in the, in the city to st- enabled the car industry, which most, pe- most people think Coventry is a, as you know, is a car centre, which it became. But the money was made on the back of cycling, first and foremost. So these people were making a lot of money. Who were they selling their bikes to? Who was buying bikes in the 1890s bike boom? In the 1890s bike boom, it was mainly the rich and aristocratic. In the mid-1890s, 1895, 96, there was a massive interest in cycling... Th- from the very rich and it was seemed to be fashionable to put on uh, fashionable clothing go for rides in Hyde Park or in local parks in the big municipal parks that grew up in the Victorian times and it the, these, the cycle companies were actually selling to those that boom didn't last very long because it, it was a fashion but then from then on after the mid 1890s cycle then became became more middle class if you like and then of course by the mid 20th century it was it was something that most people would have you know we have pictures of people going to work in this city in the 1920s and 30s and the majority of them on a bike going to work on a bike or walking so you would put the 1920s and 30s as the time when the common man got on his bike or her bike yeah i think the mid mid 20th centuries 20s 30s 40s into the 50s as well yeah i think by the the time the sort of late 50s 60s the motor car was beginning to replace it and I mean, in, in the 60s and 70s, the, the, the British cycle, the cycle industry got into lots of, lots of problems. But yes, I mean, if, I, I think, you know, the 30s and 40s, probably some of the 50s is the time when, that's when working people really went to work on their bikes. And is that because they were getting wealthier or because cycles were becoming more affordable? A bit of both, I think, yeah. Raleigh's factory in Nottingham was, a, was mass production. You know, they were making thousands of bicycles a week. So obviously when you mass produce something it becomes cheaper and of course as we as we know you know people got richer people have got richer in the 20th century as the 20th century progressed so it's a bit of both i think but i think you know it's it's like with with motor cars it's mass production getting components cheaper and doing all that than actually but in terms of coventry what's interesting by the time that by the time that happens the 20s 30s 40s and that you know, the, the bike became a mass form of personal transport. Coventry were no, make, no longer making bicycles in any number. The motor car and the motorcycle had almost entirely replaced the manufacture of cycles by the mid-20th century. So in this transition in Coventry's output of vehicles, initially cycles and then motor cars, was there any conflict at that time? I mean, we think about it now, we think bikes against cars, and there was talk about the motor menace, and people were worried about these hazardous motor vehicles coming onto the roads that had previously been the domain of of cyclists and people walking or horse-drawn carts and that kind of thing and you think oh hang on if I'm buying a bike from my company but they're also producing this vehicle that's about to run me down that might not be very good for marketing. The cycle manufacturers branched into motor car production 
because there was a slight slump in the, in the, in the cycle industry in around 1900. So I don't think in terms of the manufacturing there was any conflict at all. It was just the motor car had just become something else to make, you know, to keep the company solvent. In terms of use, uh, so that's quite an interesting thing. I, I, I don't know if, from the research we've done, it seems that the motor car was more disliked by people who used horses. It was more, it was seen more as a as competition to, you know, hackney carriage, horse-drawn vehicle manufacturers and people who used horse-drawn vehicles on the road. And the, the, the motor car was actually put up against the horse as a much more efficient form of transport. I've not done any research on whether cyclists resented it or not. Um, to be honest, I don't know. I think in, in some ways the motor car and the motorcycle, when it first came to uh, came into being, was seen in many ways as the same as the bicycle. That it allowed people freedom to get out of the city, to get into the countryside, to go touring, to expand their horizons. Literally, as the bike was, the penny farthing was very much that. And I think the early motor car, probably for a more wealthy class, but was also seen as that. And if you look at early motor car and motorcycle uh, magazines and things, the countryside and the car are seen as one, as a, a way of you know, going out and enjoying it as the bike had been 20, 30, 40 years earlier. And so all of the contemporary problems that we associate with automobility and the dominance of the car in our, our societies, these just were not apparent in those early days because there were just so few of them, I suppose. That, that's exactly right. I mean, and comparatively, when the motor car was was being born there were comparative flu cycles i mean we talk about you know these cycle companies hundreds of cycle companies in Coventry. yes but you know they weren't making millions and millions of cycles per year they were only making thousands per year so the market wasn't the same so yes i don't think that conflict existed at that time and of course the environmental issues just didn't exist at all people weren't thinking in that way at all i don't think so when did consciousness of the downside of the car come into uh, come into being I mean that must be something that you think about in the museum yeah it is I think that began to grow in the late 60s and early 70s probably before that but you see it manifest itself more in the late 60s early 70s you begin to see more literature about it and, and uh, things like that and then of course in the 80s and 90s it, it, it's grown more what about the fact that quite a lot of people were being killed by motor cars that was seen as a, an issue, wasn't it? And that was an, an issue earlier. Yes, that was... I mean, that, that's... It's almost a different issue, isn't it? It's not as... Yes, no, that was seen right from the start. I mean, during the war when the blackout was on and things like lots of people were getting killed and things, and, <laughs> as well as bombed on, you know. So, um, so yes, that has, always, that has always been seen to be a problem, that the motor car is, the motor car is dangerous. Uh, and that again grew as the 20th century progressed but it, it, almost in a sense it's a sort of another issue other than the environmental issue that we're now much more aware about or just the shape of our cities uh, issue exactly yeah. exactly I mean we've talked about as we've been riding along this city Coventry is not designed for the bicycle at all I mean, we've been, in, been knocked off our bike two or three times just getting around a very well we haven't done a mile have we <laughs> I mean, and it's just not designed for it's designed for the motor car and you can see it's designed for the motor car So this is the London Road Cemetery. We must be on the London Road then. Yeah, what we've just crossed is the road to London, literally. 
and this is London Road Cemetery. This was one of the first large cemeteries to be built outside of London. You know, there's Highgate and all those large. This was one of the first that was built outside of London. And funnily enough, we're just coming up to a rather large, sort of ornate memorial, and that's the Joseph Paxton, uh, the man who designed the Crystal Palace and was the head gardener at Chatsworth for a while. And he's there because well, his memorial's there because he was the country's MP for a short time and he also designed this cemetery. It was a uh, medieval quarry. So most of the stone that came out of this cemetery built Coventry. And as we walk down here, we've just come through the main gate. This is the sort of what you might call Millionaire's Row. As you go down here, you come across quite a lot of those people that we've been talking about. Uh, the, you know, the, the cycle pioneers and the people who made their money out of cycling. Well, you can't take it with you, can you? No, you can't. Although some of them have got very big gravestones that sort of show that they... I think this is a... The bit we're in is where the wealthy Victoria Coventrians were buried. I mean, as we go by, you'll see aldermans and justices of the peace and ex-mayors and all sorts of things buried down here. So it was a very grand place in its time because I think this is something that we often lose sight of looking backwards at a lot of, I don't want to say provincial towns, but I guess they are provincial towns and cities of, of the UK, had very glorious times in the 19th century and actually more glorious than the current capital, which is, seems to be the focus of... Uh, everything that happens in the country these days. The period we're talking about, the 1880s and 80s, it's an important town. It's, an, it's got an important industry, a growing industry. Like many provincial towns, it, you know, it, it was quite a nice place to visit and it had, there was a lot going on and, you know, and the industries were sort of pushing that forward all the time. We're just standing now by the grave James Starley. James Starley is known as the father of the cycle industry. He was there when the first velocipedes, these bone shakers, were built at the first co uh, factory in Coventry. And then he went, on to, he went on to design the first penny farthings built in the city. He was the first person to put a differential gear onto a tricycle. He, he died in 1881. So you can see this is quite an ornate, and that's 1881, before the cycle boom really took off. So he was recognised by the city as being a very important citizen, even at that early stage of the cycle industry. Have you ever visited the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris? No. Where so Jim Morrison, Jim Morrison, yeah. Oscar Wilde, yeah. plenty of French writers and so, philosophers. Yeah. Well, people go there and, and have picnics. Really? It's quite, it's quite accepted yeah, to you know, make a little picnic on the yeah. gravestone and enjoy the ambiance. I can understand it. I mean, I don't, this is probably not in the same class in terms of. I think it's pretty nice, there, but though. But nice you know, place, it's a lovely it? spot. Yeah, I don't know if we have a taboo about yeah. picnicking with the dead. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I, I find it. I find it very peaceful and it's very cool as well under the trees in this weather. So it's just a nice place to be. This is uh, John Kemp Starley's grave. He was the nephew of James Starley, who we've just been talking about. Whose grave we've just visited. John Kemp is the man who is responsible for the modern bicycle, the modern diamond freight shaved bicycle. He developed it in the 1880s and developed it as a, called the Rover Safety Bicycle. And if you see a Rover Safety Bicycle from the 1880s, you'll recognise it as a, as a bicycle 
uh, that you, you, you could ride today. And I'm, I feel that Coventry doesn't do enough to celebrate that fact. Outside the front of the museum where I work, there's a massive great big archway and it's called the Whittle Arch and it's the Frank Whittle, the inventor of a jet engine. There's also underneath that arch a statue of Frank Whittle. Now from my point of view I think you could argue that James Starley's bicycle, the bicycle that we use today, is as important if not more important than the jet engine. But the city makes nothing of this guy. We're standing in a corner of a gravestone by a not particularly ornate grave and this guy is very, very important if, if you're interested. But well, not just if you're into bicycles, in the way that society has developed since, you know, since the bicycle. And we're not celebrating that at all in this, in, in this city. And for me, that's a bit of a bugbear. I think we ought to be sort of pushing this guy instead of Frank Whittle. Now, I've got nothing against Frank Whittle and the jet engine, OK, apart from the militaristic tendencies that <laughs> got involved with. But I think this is just much more important. And, and for the city, we ought to be celebrating the bike and John Kemp Starley and pushing that forward. And to be honest, there doesn't seem to be a will in the city to do that. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. I've tried. There's a, I'm part of a group who's trying to push forward to get a memorial to him, to, to, to push forward the, the idea that the city ought to sell itself as the home of the bicycle. It still sees itself as the home of the motor car, the city does, and maybe there's too much conflict between those two and that ever-growing conflict. So there doesn't seem to be any political or economic will to celebrate the bicycle and John Kemp Starley in the same way that we celebrate Frank Whittle and the jet engine. And so he came up with the diamond-shaped frame bicycle, which is the Rover, and that sold very well in the 1890s, but died in 1901 yeah he, he again he died quite young his company went on to become the rover car company but he never made any money out of cars he made all his money and again lived in a very large house in the center of the city so his rover safety bicycle became the rover car company yeah, which yeah. is very famous that then became part of british leyland and he's now yeah. owned by the chinese and he's coming back to britain as mg rover yeah so there's a you know long sort of line of manufacturing and road transport there and so did all these bicycle inventors did they ride bicycles is there a, are there yeah. accounts of them yeah. you know out mm-hmm. in the countryside testing out yeah, their stuff yeah. did, did they did they love the thing or they just saw it as a good business opportunity no i think many of the cycle riders there are accounts of them racing of publicizing their bikes by going on long journeys themselves from bone shakers john kemp did as well so no they were i think they were enthusiasts as well you know they they, they wanted they, they liked the bicycle and they wanted to develop it because they rode it themselves it's strange because now we see the bicycle as something that we use for short journeys, for doing a bit of shopping, for getting to work. You know, it's just an everyday, quite mundane object that's very utilitarian. Obviously, there are people who do sport on it and there are people who do tours around the world and that kind of thing. But for most people, it's just, you know, going about town, really. But in those days, they were doing quite long distances and they were definitely marketing their bicycles as sort of record breakers, round the world bicycles and, much, and yeah. things like that. It's, it's quite a strange evolution of, of the idea of this machine. Yeah, I think people did more miles on their bicycles in the period we're talking about than they do nowadays. And I think this, this whole thing about the Victorian Cycling Club and the Edwardian Cycling Club is, is very interesting, that people joined the club and got out of the city on the penny farthings on their safety bicycles. You know, and those clubs became you know, the cycle touring club and things, like, and local clubs that were 
specifically for touring from getting out of the city with like-minded people and getting out and getting getting out into the countryside as we, as we said before so i think the bike although utilitarian was more important than it's seen today you know it wasn't just for going down the shops it was to it was yes it was for going down the shops but it was all for also at the weekends to get together with like-minded people get out of the cities go into the into the countryside and and you know partake of the countryside if that's if that's the phrase because people wouldn't have had much other alternative would they they would how would they walked out there or had a horse and train, gone out there trains i train. suppose yeah i mean a train you we shouldn't forget that you know if somebody wanted to go anywhere in this period of any distance they would get on a train and go there you know the bicycle is a sort i suppose it's an intermediate isn't it it's, it's sort of it's a it's a le- it, it, it's both you go to the shops with it and as it is today it's also very much part of your leisure time as well and i, I think that was very important to to, to this to, to cyclists in this in the sort of late victorian early edwardian period people would have come and lived in these cities and towns as they've grown up presumably moving from fairly rural existences these places would have been quite sooty and dirty and difficult and polluted but there still would have been a kind of folk memory of the countryside or maybe even relatives out in the countryside that people would have visited so how do you compare that to today with people and their experience of being out in the countryside do we do we have less of a connection do you think the bicycle is something that could bring us back into contact with rurality in, in the way that these guys mm. sought to because mm. perhaps they had it in their own mm. memories more more recently than, than we do now? Yeah, I think it could. The bicycle could relate to rurality in that way. I think the, 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 the obvious issue now is there's so much more competition for the bicycle. Like you just, you just said, that was the only way to get out if you were of certain means. Today, you can go all over the world for the same sort of price as a bicycle was in those days. So I don't think we connect with, with the rural scene as, as we did then because most people of a weekend would get in their car and go somewhere. And I think people now go, they get in their car and they go to a destination and they go and visit a thing, a country house or a theme park or something like or that. Or EasyJet to Barcelona easy for the jet, weekend. Exactly. Whereas, I mean... The equivalent to that in these days was, you know, was to get out on your bike and go out into, I don't know, 50, 60 miles. So there's much more of a connectivity with the countryside then. I think it might be coming back a little bit. I mean, you, you do actually see, I mean, I ride quite a lot in and around Coventry, in the countryside around Coventry. And especially at weekends, you will see families out on their bikes, not going very far, but going through country lanes, taking their children out. So I think, I think it's a certain strata of family if you like so these middle class families who are doing that for want of a better phrase but I think that's coming back into society but I, I think the difficulty is, is it's perceived that bicycles are dangerous that you go on the road and it's very dangerous to be on the road on a bicycle I personally yes it is in a town but as soon as you get out in the countryside it's a fantastic feeling to be out on a bike and I hope more people are beginning to feel that I mean it's only anecdotal evidence that I've got from riding myself but I would assume so and there's good riding to be had around the environs of Coventry, you know, good day rides to be had. Yeah, Coventry's in the middle of leafy Warwickshire. South Warwickshire is the posh end, you know, you've got Warwick, Leamington, Spa and Stratford. It's very nice riding there. I actually like to go up the northern area because it, it's a bit more hilly and, and it's a bit more scenic. Uh, and, and yes, but within five minutes of where I live, I can be out in a country lane. It's in a very nice part of the country, Coventry. Yeah. I was riding with Steve Bagley of the Coventry Transport Museum. The museum is well worth a detour, as they say, or even a special trip. 
It's free to get in and there's an excellent collection of bicycles as well as an awful lot else about transport and the city of Coventry. This summer they've got a bunch of cycling-related talks, exhibitions and events going on and I'll put a link to details about those from the Bike Show's website. That's www.thebikeshow.net. There'll be more from Coventry next week on the show with the story of one of the city's greatest ever racing cyclists, Eileen Sheridan, the mighty atom, who broke every record in women's time trialling from 25 miles to 1,000 miles back in the 1940s and 50s. And before I say goodbye... I ought to remind you of London Velonotte, which is the architectural city night ride on the 23rd of June. It's being organised by a Russian, Sergei Nikitin, who's done similar Velonotte rides in St. Petersburg, New York and Rome. This is the first one in London and we're hoping to make it hit. It's part of the London Festival of Architecture. Resonance FM will be doing a live broadcast during the night including a lot of talks by architectural experts that will be played at the point in the ride when the riders are outside a particular building or a place of interest. So if you are going along for the ride, do take an FM radio so you can tune in for that. The ride is on the 23rd of June, as I said. It's uh, from about midnight or just after midnight, leaving from somewhere in the city of London and heading east and ending up at the London Pleasure Gardens for a concert by uh, some 24-piece orchestra. What more can you want in a summer of cycling? Hopefully the rain will have stopped by then. You can find out more about that on the London Festival of Architecture website or on the Bike Show's website. I'll put a link up. So until then, until next week, until London Velo Notte, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.